Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Honestly, if this is coming from a mental advocate, so it, it's not advantageous for me to say this about the mental health community, but there is no, I, I repeat, there is no mental health process of, of evaluation or support that we see in the near future will mitigate the danger of guns. Welcome to the Edge of Sports podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week, we speak to former NBA player Royce White about everything that's going on in the NBA right now with the season about to pop off. And people may know that Royce White was a crusading voice on the NBA's policy dealing with mental health. We're going to speak with him about that. But most centrally, I want to talk to Royce White about Colin Kaepernick and the question of collusion. Because there certainly, I think, was a lot of evidence that Royce White was colluded against by NBA owners. And I want to talk to him about the pitfalls of pursuing that kind of a case against a major sports league. Also, I've got some choice words about the importance of us not looking at athletic protest as a spectator sport. Also, I got some Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down awards, my own analysis of the Colin Kaepernick collusion case, and an absolutely sick slam poem on sports and politics from the inimitable Tariq Ture. But first... Royce White. So, Royce White, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. It's always a pleasure. Yeah, man. First and foremost, before we get into any of the issues roiling the sports world, I just want you to give an update to our listeners about like where you are, what you're doing, and what's up with Royce White. Yeah, uh, well, I'm in Canada. Um, I live in London, Ontario. I play for the London Lightning, which is a, a team, a professional team here in Canada with the, the NBL Canada League. And uh, we're just coming off a championship season where we – you know, won 88% of our games, which is an incredible feat for any professional team, I think, in the world. Damn. It just doesn't, doesn't happen often. Uh, yeah, I'm a winner, Dave. You, you know, <laughs> no, don't get me to talking my shit already now. No, oh, my so, goodness. So, uh, yeah, you know, and I, and I was able to – I was fortunate enough to win MVP, and uh, now we're gearing up to, to go into another season here and preparing for, uh, for a repeat, hopefully. A right, couple questions for you. First um... – what were your what were your stats for your MVP year? I'm very curious. And second of all, how is your team handling people who are familiar story would know that uh, one of your big conflicts conflicts with the NBA had to do with with flying and this idea of flying and social and anxiety related to flying and the NBA. You were certainly given indication would would help you with that, and they did not. And so, but talk to me a little bit about how that's being handled in London, Ontario. In addition to, I really do want your stats. Yeah, yeah I, I averaged about 20 and 11 and around six or seven assists a game. Um, uh, you know, I led the league in triple doubles. Um, I had I had more triple doubles in one year than, than the, the league leader had in the six-year league's history. So, uh, and, and there were some really close ones as well. Uh, so, I mean, that's just, that's just part of what I do and, and bring to the table from a, from a skill set standpoint. Nothing really stand out there, I think. Like a standout triple double for me would probably be like getting 30, 20, and 10. Instead, I'm, you know, and like I had three triple doubles where I had like 20, 10, and 10 or something. So, um, you know, that, that, that went well for me, but I'm looking to even 
push my own limits this year as far as what I can do statistically and in the right situations, not looking to be selfish. Um, but, uh, you know, to your point about what they're doing differently than the league, it's, you know, there's I think there's more of a misconception that that there was really anything specific that I was asking for in terms of like day to day operation other than a responsibility to uh, acknowledging that mental health should be a priority and, and not only should it be a priority, it should be a, a, a constant priority or a pillar priority uh, in, in achieving an overall health or any type of comprehensive health. So, you know, this team here in London, I mean, number one, you have to acknowledge that the Canadian culture treats health way differently than we do in America, especially in the business world. I mean, uh, both moms and dads get work leave after childbirth like so i mean it just that i mean that just you know it sets the tone for the just a, a clear cultural difference in perspective on on priority of, of health and family and uh kind of <clears throat> the comprehensive nature of what it is to to just be and, and being and, and well-being and all of that so you know a, a lot of that naturally comes with this where i am and and the team naturally has some of that um but again, like I wasn't asking for the league to do anything mm-hmm. specific other than like address the fact that you don't have a mental health policy at all. And there's there's no way that we could justify that that makes any sense. I mean, so I mean, other, other than that, it's like the flying thing that was just overshot by everybody. It was mm-hmm. the it was the straw man. Right. It's a straw man argument. So can I can I just ask you, um, you you obviously I, it goes without saying I'm more saying this for my audience that. You have an NBA skill set. Um, is playing in the NBA still something that's on your to-do list, or do you feel like because you were such a critic of the league that you're not going to be allowed back in the club? Well, uh, it's it's hard to say. I mean, if I was to guess, I would assume that there's going to be major apprehension to to let me back in the club, so to speak, or or apprehension really to face the the conversation that they know that I'll bring. Um, and, and, and that's fine with me, too. I mean, it's, it's, it's not fine with me in the sense that it's right, but it's fine with me in the sense that I will be able to still navigate life and, and, and be uh, productive and, and still continue to grow as a human being. So, uh, but we're definitely not going to uh, let the opportunity of, of my youth and, and my skill set just wither away in, in some type of, uh, you know, superficial vacuum of uh, what do I want to say, it, you know, non-acknowledgement or, or negligence, you know, we're not going to just allow that to happen. So probably sometime in the middle of the season or, or early next year, we're definitely going to call back to uh, the table, the, the notion of me being able to play in that league because I do have the skill set. So, yeah. And these sports are supposed to be meritocracies, but as we're learning with Colin Kaepernick, that's not always the case, which is what I wanted to ask you about next, because the the story burning through the sports world as we're having this conversation is Colin Kaepernick uh, bringing a collusion grievance against the National Football League. Yeah. And I wanted to ask you before I get your thoughts about that is was this something that you and your legal or management team ever considered with the NBA is filing an actual collusion grievance? And what were those discussions like? Well, it's not off the table. I'll tell you that. Um, yes, yeah, it's, de- it's definitely not off the table. And uh, I think initially, especially back when I first came into the league, you know, my position on mental health was very uh, altruistic. Uh, and, and I don't say that to like try and toot my own horn, but it was just it was just one of those situations where, again, I'm, I'm going into a room full of people that I, you know, uh, probably falsely uh presumed already knew that mental health should be a priority or already understood what mental health is or, you know, understood the dynamic of it in the workplace. And that just wasn't the case. So I think as I tried to, as I tried to navigate through that, um, part of what I tried to accept is that uh, a lot of, a lot of this isn't personal, right. And, And it's not on purpose. There's not, there's not a malevolent nature to, to this apprehension or this resistance to mental health. And uh, I tried to approach it from that that regard. So even my, you know, from my dealings with the league to my dealings with the Rockets and and everybody in between is like there was never any like legal posturing because I wasn't even coming at it from that angle. I'm like, here's this issue that I really don't know how we haven't even discussed or put into policy. But I know that I have a diagnosed anxiety disorder and it's a reality in my life. So 
uh, I, I would hope that you would accept that it's it's a reality in, in you guys' life that is being this corporation. And and really, we know that's a reality for all of us, not only the players, but the management as well and the owners. So, you know, why is it that we haven't tackled this? Dealing with it from that perspective, it just never really crossed my mind like this is a this is a lawsuit or a civil action or, or a grievance type of situation until until I had enough conversations to realize that that there wasn't a lack of knowledge of mental health. There was a, a lack of uh, willingness to acknowledge it. Right. Mm. That, there, you know, there wasn't a I, I came into it thinking that, oh, well, OK, maybe maybe there's been some oversight. Right. Maybe there's just been some genuine oversight here. And uh, as the conversations got deeper, I realized that it wasn't. And then that's kind of where it it, it, it still didn't turn into, um, you know, a situation where I was like, oh, now we got to go to the mat and have a fight. I was I mean, even as early as 12, 18 months ago, I wrote a letter to the league still with the co-signature of five, six doctors saying, hey, look, here's this issue. And and we should uh, we should address it not only on the behalf of the players in the league, but the, the peripheral uh, individuals that the brand touches and the influence that the brand has in corporate culture around the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, but all that being said, I have no problem with him filing a grievance. And like I said, it's not off the table for me either. Mm. And, and let me ask you this, um, and maybe you could help us read the tea leaves as someone who has lived in these Colin Kaepernick shoes more than any of us. What do you take from the fact that Colin Kaepernick is using an outside attorney and chose not to go through his union to, to actually issue this grievance. And, um, and what was, as a follow-up to that, what, what was your experience with the NBPA, the Players Association for Basketball Players, and would you go through them uh, if you pursued something similar? It's tough to say, man. I think every situation is, is going to present its own... Uh unique circumstances that that will dictate how you proceed through something like that i i totally uh, would understand why he chose not to to uh activate the union in the situation in my situation uh our director of the mbpa at the, at the time was indicted for embezzlement so i mean his power this was billy hunter right billy hunter was the director when i was right when i was drafted right so I mean, the power that he was swinging was all but entirely mitigated through his own, you know, transgressions. So, you know, I definitely uh, wouldn't have used the union in that situation. And and because of how the union's relationship has been with the with the NBA and the CBA going forward and, and what I've watched happen on behalf of my issue specifically being mental health, I wouldn't really probably activate the union in that situation either. Um and, you know, in, in his situation, you have to take a strong look at the historical context of how that league and union has dealt with its players just on an ongoing basis, not regarding hyper-political issues, just like just concussions, for example. It's like, I don't know if we, uh, I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's wise to trust the union's motive in, in those situations. Uh, so that's, a, that's an interesting, that's an interesting angle on this. It's, it's, uh. Because ideally, you would think that the union would be your vehicle, as particularly in any kind of a collusion case, because it, it speaks directly to the power of management. Yeah, but I think I think part of that is is um, under a, a faulty presupposition that the union is actually there as a as a mechanism of of protection for the player, not its own business entity. Speak about that a little bit. I mean, because a union in theory is that's what it's supposed to be is a self-defense organization for the workers yeah. themselves. You think um, do you th- is that your analysis of all unions or is it particularly what you're what, you, what you've seen with sports unions in particular? It's tough to say, man. I mean, it's, it's, I think all unions are different and I think that unions are comprised of individuals and there's a collective direction or more orientation for the union. And I think that that orientation often has a lot to do with the orientation of the corporation that they're associated with. Now, one of the things that is different, I think about professional sports unions versus uh, other common workers unions is that most common workers unions sprout up on their own, uh, you know, organically amongst, amongst the workers versus uh, these professional leagues actually put these unions into play, right? There's a, there's a huge difference in that relationship. So um, it, it's just my opinion that the union is always tilted to, cre- to uh, kind of 
approach these issues in a way that still perpetuates the function of the industry versus when you have to actually just call somebody to the mat and say, listen, we're not going to accept this. They're a little more apprehensive to do that in a, in a stern way. Mm. Cause you know, if, I mean, if, I mean, let's be honest, like, especially with professional football and basketball, not baseball so much because their union is well endowed by the players. But uh, if the football players and the, <clears throat> the football and the basketball players, I mean, just said like, listen, we're not playing because Donald Sterling, basically said that you know i get said, black said people. so much yes <laughs> yeah hey i give black people the essentials and, and therefore i'm not a racist right and or or that you know the the nfl owners were all conspiring to hide concussion science if, if they did that what does the union become in those situations like they don't they don't still function in those situations mm-hmm. the only way the union still functions is if there's players to unionize right so mm. so I want to get your read on what you think is going to happen in the NBA this year. But before I do, I know you've been giving this a lot of thought. And I would just love your general um, analysis of what's been happening in the NFL these last couple of months. And particularly the attacks on the on NFL players, on players who are taking a knee or sitting or raising a fist to raise awareness about racial inequality and police violence. And yeah. Donald Trump's insistence on harping on this issue while Puerto Rico suffers, while California burns, while tensions exist with North Korea and Iran that have been profoundly exacerbated by this president. And so in the middle of all of this crisis, we're talking about the NFL because Donald Trump is directing us to talk about the NFL. And I would just love your thoughts about your general analysis about what's happening here. Yeah, I, I think I think we're seeing uh, I think we're seeing the results of a of a deep neglect for the the complexity and fragility of of the human psychology and, and consciousness up and down the line. You know, from from geopolitical issues all the way down to interpersonal relationships, and mm. and there's no few and far between in, in that in that analysis on from my vantage point. Um, and and it, it correlates directly to the NFL in, in multiple ways, I'd say. But, you know, number one, you see this kind of uh, selective ambiguity of these political identities. And, uh, you know, it, it lends insight into this kind of dissonance that's happening in this this polarity that becomes really um, distorted. You know, and, and I'll give you a, an example that I that I see clearly is, you know, the at the same time as we're seeing this first amendment kind of uh, political politically charged uh, time or a politically charged discourse uh, regarding athletes speaking out for example um at the same time there's this second amendment discourse that's going on as well and the people who are uh pushing the second amendment pro second amendment i should say um one of the things that's odd about it, peculiar to me, is that they seem to use the the argument that, the, the re, for example, the reason we shouldn't have a gun ban is because there's an ever-present threat of an authoritarian or totalitarian democracy. <clears throat> and and while I definitely agree that that is an ever-present threat, it's not any more hypothetically probable than a police officer misusing his gun. And somehow that's not – the NRA doesn't see that as – the authoritarian government that they fear the idea uh, to me like shooting and on it's what makes this so clearly about race to me because Man, i mean clearly because it's like if a police shoot an unarmed person isn't that the ultimate example of an authoritarian jackbooted thuggery that they always talk about well i mean you know stalin implied the uh the black coats was it you know and you know so i i and i, and I don't i don't think that that's what's happening in america just quite yet you could make an argument that there is a definite authoritarian or totalitarian uh energy or momentum to the way that our government works but i wouldn't say that it's uh i wouldn't say that it's the traditional violent totalitarian that the that the right fears and what i would also say is that they need to be mindful and, and i don't subscribe to left or right because i think that that's a a stifling intellectual orientation to, you know, to become, you know, victim to the polarity. But I will say that what the right needs to be weary of, in my opinion, is that don't be caught up in thinking that the totalitarian regime that will emerge will look like the totalitarian regimes of old, right? So uh, it's not going to look like Nazi Germany. It's not going to look like a Stalin Russia. It's not going to look like a Mussolini, Mussolini Italy. It's going to look 
different and, and totalitarianism can evolve and it evolves usually when society has evolved and this society has clearly evolved or devolved right? so, or or devolved right so it's it's one of those things where you know it's not going to be a door-to-door uh <laughs> snatching people out of their homes and <laughs> unless you're an immigrant who's <laughs> a daca person who's uh who right. they wouldn't let enroll re-enroll in daca i mean there are people being rounded up people who thought they would be safe no, there is that element, and, and what I'm saying more so that's shocking is not the 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 seemingly uh, avoidance of the true nature of totalitarianism and and how it's used as a straw man in in this Second Amendment argument. What I'm saying is more peculiar is how you don't see that in a president or a corporation or even individuals attacking people's freedom to protest in a peaceful way. Like, let's not forget that this kneeling thing is a peaceful protest. I think mm-hmm. people are so caught up in the emotion of it that like, there are more radical and violent and, and rowdy forms of protest that we could say, listen, we know you're protesting something that's, that's valid, but do you have to protest it that way? Right. That that's a, that's a real valid argument, but this is actually one of the more peaceful protests you could possibly do. And you don't see how that's totalitarian or authoritarian. Now you crack down on peaceful protest, you create the precondition for violent protest. I mean, but in, in the same in the same sentence, though, a lot of those people will advocate or argue uh, that the freedom of speech for for right wing extreme groups to be able to call people nigger is is somehow is somehow the, the First Amendment uh, preserving democracy. And it's like, OK, well, you can't have it both ways. And that's what I mean about this selective ambiguity. That's just it, it's a clear dissonance and uh, from from reality or, or at least it's a clear dissonance from the the country or the democracy or the ideology that we would like people to think that we subscribe to. No, I think that um, somehow trusting the government to shut down just speech that you don't like is a very dangerous road because uh, they'll turn around and use that power on you. I also think, though. That if you have something like, like say, some Nazi who wants to speak on your college campus and you want to organize people to drown them out because you understand that their speech is intimately linked to violence, I think that is completely a legitimate political act as well. That's where I fall on this. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a complex one because, you know, I, I actually um, – I'm, I'm of the school of thought that I actually – I actually do like people to be able to say things like nigger and, and really other, uh, you know, extremist, you know, kind of ideological, you know, uh, thoughts and, and outbursts or, or inner emotions that they're having, because I think we need to see them, you know, and, and I do agree with that side of the of the First Amendment speech as well as it's not only about our ability to protest and say what's on our mind and practice our, you know, our thoughts individually and freely is that that also it, it promotes an honesty too, and and what you what you don't want, I think, in my opinion, is is a thirty year closet racist like Donald Sterling controlling a team and real estate mm-hmm. and a bunch of other shit. Like I mm-hmm. actually, I actually would have liked to hear him say, "Black people, get, me giving black people the essentials is is means that I'm not racist." And when he was thirty, I mean, I would have mm-hmm. loved to, but you know, we also have created a, an environment where that door swings both ways, and 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 we've actually created a a bunch of closet extremist as well well this is what a lot of folks call the new jim crow because somehow it's acceptable to be a racist slumlord for 30 years but as soon as you're caught on tape using a racial slur against magic johnson well then that's too far so when it's racism without spouting n-bombs you're somehow protected uh just the same way it's like we don't we won't view like the prison buildup as quote-unquote racist even though it affects people based on the color of their skin disproportionately like and it's not viewed the same way. Meanwhile, you know, if if Donald Trump was caught saying an N bomb on tape, uh, well, who knows what that would do, given his supporters. But <laughs> let's move on from that. Um, but but you you make you make some interesting points, some good, some interesting food for thought. Oh, I also want to say, Royce, just because we have a lot of listeners who are not basketball fans at all, I just want to point out to folks that R- Royce White is a black man. And yeah, I just want yeah. folks to know that so I'm not just like – if people think I'm talking to somebody who is not black and they're dropping N-bombs and I'm just sort of sitting here passively, just so folks know. I just Well, like no, I mean, but, but to be fair to it is like, you know, my I have, I have heavy Norwegian and Mexican second yeah. generation, you know, uh, heritage. And, 
you know, the, the, to, to use the word nigger is uh, in this sense, we also have to be uh, conscious of of intent and motive. Right. And, and I think that's yeah. something that also this, you know, we've created a hypersensitive situation where intent and motive are just thrown to the wind and we just reactionary in a lot of cases. So. No. And, and, that, and that question of intent, I, I think, goes so incredibly far. I mean, people, we people really have to consider intent when organizing with people because sometimes folks say things that are impolitic, but they're not doing it to be assholes. To me, I call it the asshole test. It's right. Like, are you are you actually trying to be an asshole through your speech, or are you just somebody who speaks differently than me, or was raised differently than me, or has different sensitivities than me? And to go back to Donald Trump for for a second, and and I don't. Oh, he's an I asshole for, in my view. Yeah, I like, don't for one. I don't for one second take the things that he's doing as as uh, intelligently malicious. Like I think Adolf Hitler was brilliant for you know from an IQ standpoint, he was like really smart, right? So the things that he was doing and saying were uh, intentionally and and motively based, uh, monstrous and and malicious and and malevolent. Um, Donald Trump doesn't strike me as that. He's like really incoherent. But I will say that if you just take for face value who he is. We all have to remember that he had a show called The Apprentice that was really him being an asshole. Yeah, like that was that was the crutch of of what people tuned in to watch is him being an asshole. So the the idea that we're all shocked that he's an asshole is is also peculiar to me. I mean, it's oh, it's, it's very like, peculiar. It's very it peculiar. Yeah, to put it mildly, um, I really do appreciate your time. I do need to ask you a couple more things here, though. Like, like what do you think? I mean, starting up the NBA season. What do you think is going to happen in terms of the NBA and protest? And if players do protest on the court, even though it is in the letter of the law of the NBA that you actually cannot kneel during the anthem, which is different than the NFL, and that right. it actually is in the rule book with the NBA, I could also see players flouting that. And if they do, what do you think the response of the progressive Adam Silver would be? I think, I think anybody who believes that Adam Silver is a progressive has to go back and check, check the lines. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's a he's a person who wants to be perceived as a progressive. Uh, and and that was that was calculated as well. Uh, and, and Adam Silver uh, to, to talk differently or to, uh, you know, contrary to what I said about Donald Trump, he is a, a smart guy. OK, so the things that you see him say are coherent and they're very intentional and they're very calculated. So when you see him say something like, you know, um, you know, guys uh, are expected to kneel that's completely intentional you know and 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 really as far as the protest felt like i really don't care whether the players kneel or not i think the players should not play for a number of reasons outside of uh this sort of opportunistic chance to join arms in uh, against uh an obvious racial inequality or injustice like black men getting shot in the streets i think that there's an uh an income inequality or uh an inequality that exists much deeper than us getting shot in the streets and actually lends to the momentum of us getting shot in the streets. Cause when you devalue uh, a person's life through capitalistic economic ideology, it, that, that can trickle into, into the streets or into any organization that is governed by finance, which the police department totally is. Um, so so it, that really doesn't really, I'm not really watching for that. I think this whole patriotism thing has to go back on the table ASAP. You know, I, I think we have to really take a look at why the discourse is even about being patriotic or not. Um, I, honestly, uh, if if Kaepernick was to have kneeled, and, and I support what he did, um, you know, and I, I can't be in his head, so I can't know exactly his motive or intent, but it seems genuine. Um, but if he was to kneel on behalf of the troops, I think that that would be totally valid as well. Because, uh, you know, while Donald Trump is accusing him of, of disrespecting the country or, or the troop sacrifice, he's simultaneously inflammatory, you know, inflaming a, a geopolitical conflict with North Korea that we may have to send troops into. And he's doing it really haphazardly and really immaturely. Yes. Uh, and, and, and beyond that, it's like, let's actually take a stronger look at historical context and say that, you know, I was reading the other day that there's been more people that have died from gun violence from 1968 until now than all of the American wars in history. So when, when I hear that, I'm like, is it possible that, is it possible that we have disrespected the troops and our uh, willingness to go to war uh, 
for our country's entire history, including the Civil War and, and you know, other wars that weren't about energy and, and, and religious wars or wars on terror or, you know, things like that. Uh, and and is, it, is it too far of a stretch to say that what's disrespectful is that you could actually make an argument in this country that our troops have laid down their lives for our ability to be able to shoot each other here at home? <clears throat> that be cops or civilians or, or you know, mass shooters or... Or, or whatever, or, or accidentally, you know, man shoots his wife at the at the dinner table cleaning his gun, you know. So all of those things have to get get put back on the table, and uh, you know, this patriotism thing is is a scary notion too, and it has the the essence of a totalitarianism, in my opinion, is that you know this blind respect, quote unquote, for the troops uh, mm-hmm. can't be. It, it can't become the straw man, and, and what it seems like it's become is the straw man to really mitigate the... No, that part, I've been writing and tweeting about this. Like It's very disturbing also to me when people then point to troops that support Kaepernick as if to say, hey, you see, it's not offensive to the troops when, A, this was never about the military, and B, yeah. this idea that we're searching for sanction from the military to exercise our constitutional rights is, is just is scary <laughs> to me. I mean, it's like I, a- I saw all these people on the quote unquote left who were celebrating the fact that a four star general, Michael Hayden, wrote some columns saying I support Colin Kaepernick's right you know, to free speech. And I'm just like, well, I mean, I care if as a citizen he does it, but why should I care as a general? That he supports it. That's very scary to me, that kind of thinking. Yeah, I mean, the, the listen, the wars that we fought, and, and, you know, we could go a whole hour into this, but the legitimacy and, and validity of the wars that we've gone to, especially in the recent years, you know, uh, it, it can't even, it, it'd be, it'd be, we'd be remiss not to take a look at whether or not us going to those wars was disrespectful to the troops or not, right? And And, and if we want to talk about respecting the troops, Let's not talk about ceremonial gestures at professional football games. Let's talk about how we have done a, a terrible... Afghanistan. We've been there almost two decades. Like we could talk no, but, about that. But 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 let's talk about with how no we've strategy. done a terrible job. A terrible job with supporting our troops' mental health when they come home. Mm, how disrespectful that... is that? Now you ended with me- mental health, and unfortunately, we only have a couple more minutes. But this is something you and I have been talking about for several weeks, and I, I wish we haven't been able to talk about it for several weeks. But I wanted you to talk a little bit about the Vegas shooting and the yeah. way that meant because you, you are the person I like speaking to about mental health. And I know you've seen this, the way that mental health is being used as a way to explain what happened when obviously you'd never see that when it's brown or black people. But but even but in also, even though there's no actual evidence that mental health was an issue and what took place here, but in terms of this person's previous life, but independent of all of this, what was your take and what is your take whenever the right, the NRA says, well, the issue is not, uh, you know, gun control. The issue is mental health. Yeah, it, it's a sleight of hand move for sure. And it's it's what we it's it's what I'm learning is, is uh, you know, one of the philosophical terms called black truth is you're telling the truth, but you're using it in a way that's actually intended to. Uh, create a, a distortion, which basically is a complex lie, right? And um, mental health is a crisis globally, and it does need priority, and it does need respect. It also needs research, uh, and it also needs people not to talk about it out of hand when they when they need a scapegoat or when they need to shift uh, the the spotlight or the the direction or the focus. And you know, I just think that. Honestly, if this is coming from a mental advocate, so it, it's not advantageous for me to say this about the mental health community, but there is no, I, I repeat, there is no mental health process of, of evaluation or support that we see in the near future will mitigate the danger of guns. Okay, so there, there, it doesn't exist. And so what I assume is that what Paul Ryan is doing when he says that there's a mental health reform that needs to go on is that either he actually doesn't know enough about mental health to know that 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 proposition is is very um, it's more hypothetical than the authoritarian democracy that he works for. I mean, you know, I, I don't know if he knows that or if he's actually saying that on purpose because he does know and he realizes that 
what we will come down to or deduce is that, hey, mental health is one of these dynamic things that we could never use as a screening process to try and, and be a conduit for gun safety. So then I get to say, well, listen, well, there's no way to measure that mental health thing. So so now we're back to square one with no with no forward movement. See, that that's a sleight mm-hmm. of hand. And, and, and people people see it. And I, I think that, you know, the, the NRA and this whole this whole notion that uh, that a gun ban wouldn't work or, or, you know, the argument is that a gun ban wouldn't see a reduction of of uh, gun access for, you know, criminal gun access or gun violence. It's like, well, there's no instantiated evidence that a gun ban wouldn't see some reduction in both. So I assume that what pro gun people mean is that the rate of reduction wouldn't be worth it. OK, and, and that's a scary notion because we're actually evaluating uh uh, implementations of political policy and the reduction of not being worth it if it could just save one life. And that, and that ironically, is the exact same reason why mental health is in the place that it is, because the processes that we uh, have implored or the mechanisms that work in our society don't take into account the one person, the individual, and how important the individual is and the effect that the individual has on the collective, right? So it's not just, it's not just if, oh, well, if you know, if we reduce gun access by one criminal, then that's enough. No, it's like, what is the what is the rate of efficiency that you're actually asking for, NRA? Like, what mental health screening would you like us to? Two-thirds of the people who have mental health conditions aren't diagnosed. So by those numbers alone, the screening process would be flawed. Like, people who actually have these conditions aren't even diagnosed in their own life. So how would a screening at a gun store work? Like, don't. Mm-hmm. You know, don't don't convolute the conversation with people who are paying close attention because it's not working. Just go out and say, listen, we want to keep our guns because we do Mm -hmm. because they're symbolic and and, and they make us feel powerful and they they help us with our insecurities. And just say that and we can work from there. But, you know, these these uh, these false prepositions are non-starters for me. And, and, And Paul Ryan is doing us a great disservice as well as the NRA by by talking. You could have just ended the sentence there. Paul yeah. Ryan is doing us a great disservice. Period. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> but, you know, when they talk about mental health and also when they do so while proposing budgets that cut hundreds of millions from mental health services, I think it reveals kind of the cra- the craven hypocrisy at work. But, yo, I-, I got Royce, man. Thank you so much for your time. You've been more than generous with it. Great luck on the season this year. I want to like now follow what you're doing in London, Ontario. I want to, like, follow it game by game. So, please, keep us in the loop. We'll do our Royce White game by game update on the podcast. Yo, (laughs) let me know, Royce, what kind of music are you listening to right now? What gets you in a good headspace? Oh, wow. Um, I'm going with uh, LP. Uh, LP. Yeah, LP. Do some some Muddy Waters. Some Muddy Waters LP. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Sounds amazing, man. Man. Muddy Waters. Yeah, Muddy Waters by LP, man. She's she's probably one of the one of the best, one of the most powerful voices in the industry right now, I think, and, and maybe of all time. Got a very pronounced Stevie Nicks essence to her and uh, uh just raw and emotional and great vocal range and you know, being a Prince fan from Minnesota, we uh we appreciate musicality. So. Absolutely. I will ask you for mercy. I will come to you right. Very well put. Hey, Royce, thank you so much for joining us, man. That was stellar as always. Thanks, brother. I appreciate it, man. That was Royce White, ladies and gents. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. For 150 years, The Nation magazine has given you the best in unembedded journalism. Just this past week, they produced some amazing, amazing coverage of issues ranging from Bob Mueller's impeachment proceedings and what that could mean to grassroots stories about schools and segregation. It really is a remarkable publication. It's putting out media that nobody else is doing and media that's absolutely critical for navigating these difficult times. And also, I do have to say, if you go to thenation.com slash subscribe, 
And for a very, very small amount of money, actually subscribe to The Nation. Not only do you have access to tons more articles, but you support the continuation of this podcast. So go to thenation.com slash subscribe and enjoy what is offered. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And this segment of Choice Words, I just want to call it a reality check about how we're viewing these protests on the field and all the players taking it in. Okay, listen. I was speaking to a legend of the black freedom struggle of the 1960s on the phone last week. No names, although I tell this story with their permission. This individual was very upset about the rumors amplified by the White House as if divine truth that the NFL would be changing their rules to force players to stand at attention, hand on their hearts, during the national anthem. And just so folks know that as of this broadcast, that is not the case, and Roger Goodell has stated that the rules will not be changing. So this person could not stand the thought of these athletes being humbled by a sport that potentially takes away so much from them, their health, their minds, and now seems also to be on the hunt for their dignity. This person implored me to speak to any NFL players that I might know and say to them, if you accept the stripping of your rights like this, it will set the black community back a century, end quote. Look, this is not a message I'll be passing on, and not only because of how comically ridiculous it would sound coming out of my mouth. Like, you don't want to hear me saying, you're going to set the black community back a century. That would be kind of silly. But while I am deeply sympathetic to what this person and all of us have invested in this rebellion of NFL players, I would argue that it is a misread of how much power these athletes actually have and also where change comes from to think that everything is riding on their shoulders. If people think that NFL players are going to lead a new civil rights movement or even be the substitute for the building of such a movement, then we are setting ourselves up for a profound level of disappointment. First, there is the social reality of the players themselves. Their work situation is almost a caricature of precarious labor. It's not just that the typical career lasts only three seasons or the fact that they don't have guaranteed contracts or can be cut at any time or even blackballed like Colin Kaepernick if they dare stand for something other than the selling of their sport. It's that they play a uniquely violent game where any play can be their last. That some of these players face all of these obstacles and are still pushing forward in the face of a bullying president and the death threats issued by his minions is living proof of their courage. It is inspiring at a time when inspiration is in short supply. That we are following this story so desperately is also a testament to how thirsty so many of us are for heroes in this era of orange tyranny. But to think that NFL players will lead a resistance in a vacuum is a recipe for regret. If anything, it is evidence as if more was needed of the terrible way that we are mistaught history in this country, from grade school to the History Channel. We are fed this idea that change happens because of the actions of great men, and occasionally women, each one a modern-day Moses, leading an acquiescent mass to a promised land. This reading of the past conditions us to be passive in the face of injustice, constantly waiting for a superhero savior. This is, if anything, even truer in the film and book documentations of great athletes who stood at the intersection of sports and politics. The tendency of sports histories is to decontextualize athletes and create icons out of human beings. It's an approach that's left us with a skewed view where people like Muhammad Ali, Bill Russell, Tommy Smith, and John Carlos weren't a product of the 1960s as much as a creator of them. We would be wise to remember the words of Dr. Harry Edwards, who was at the heart of those struggles, and then wrote, quote, It was inevitable that this revolt of the black athletes should develop, with struggles being waged by black people in the areas of education, housing, employment, and many others. It was only a matter of time before Afro-American athletes shed their fantasies and delusions and asserted their manhood and faced the facts of their existence. The roots spring from the same seed that produced the sit-ins, the freedom rides, and the rebellions in Watts, Detroit, and Newark, end quote. Similarly, Billie Jean King in Title IX legislation never sees the light of day without the women's liberation movement. Yes, Billie Jean King shaped that movement, 
but the movement itself, as she herself says, was a precondition to her emergence. Today, these NFL players are not fighting because they are poring over statistics that show police shootings are up in 2017, or because they woke up one day and decided that silence was not an option. They exist because of the Black Lives Matter movement. They exist because of the horrors broadly felt when video of police shooting the unarmed, like Terrence Crutcher and Walter Scott, or the legally armed, like Philando Castile, hit social media. The heroic actions of NFL players raise awareness about an issue that the current president refuses to discuss. But while amplifying the movement is critical, it's not a substitute for a movement in and of itself. The most far-reaching grassroots response to these players has been the sight of young athletes taking a knee from cheerleaders to soccer players, from high school football players willing to get kicked off their team to German soccer stars. It's remarkable to see, but it's also not enough. If players are going to keep up the fight, it will only be because we are doing the hard work of building anti-racist movements in the streets. This is one instance where watching pro athletes absolutely cannot afford to be a spectator sport. And now it's the part of the show where we give out our Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down awards. This week has been so epic that we actually have three, not one, not two, but three winners of the Just Stand Up award. The first one goes to a young man by the name of Courtney Ware, a high school football player in Bell Glade, Florida. Now, if you've never heard of Bell Glade, you have to know that it is one of the poorest places in the United States. They call it Muck City. And it's also one of the biggest suppliers of NFL players in the United States. And Bell Glade also, I'll just put this out here for you, is a short drive away from Mar-a-Lago, uh, Donald Trump's quote-unquote winter White House. Like nowhere do you see what this country is all about, the gap between rich and poor, quite like the adjacent nature of Mar-a-Lago and Bell Glade, Florida. So Courtney Ware goes to Glade Central High School and he spoke to the BBC of all outlets about why he was joining the Take a Knee protest. Please listen to what Courtney Ware has to say. I did it for the police brutality, man. I, someone got to speak up. I'm tired of seeing us black people getting killed for it, especially young black people at like that, man. When you look at the, the NFL and you see players like Colin Kaepernick, who, who started to see, did you take inspiration yeah, from that? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Most definitely. That's a big role model. That's how I looked up to him. Man, nearly down standing up for black people, man. A lot of people not doing it. Even Dallas, even they had, even the manager standing up, it's kneeling down too. Come on, man, that's that's a major success for us, man. Those black people. It will lead to better things. It will, it will open people's eyes, more people's eyes. Keep doing what y'all doing, please. Please, we need us black people to speak up. Everybody to speak up, please. Bam. I gotta say, I just love the fact that Courtney Ware references Anquan Bolden, who is also from Belglade, Florida, and has also been one of the least mentioned people who's been at the heart of this movement. I love that he's giving Anquan Bolden his dap. The other Just Stand Up Award goes to somebody who, oh, by the way, has been working very closely with Anquan Bolden, someone we've given this to before, and that's Malcolm Jenkins, the cornerback for the Philadelphia Eagles. Why Malcolm Jenkins? Because there was a lot of noise about a week and a half ago, by the time you're listening to this podcast, of Roger Goodell putting out this memo saying that all players should be standing for the anthem, and Jerry Jones, of course, saying that all of his players would stand or they would not play, and several players since then have come out and said, hell no, this is not happening. But the first person to do it was Malcolm Jenkins. And it takes guts to be first. And this is what Malcolm Jenkins said about raising his fist during the anthem. He said, I would still do it. I mean, I've been that committed to it because that decision is not mine. I made the decision a year ago that I was going to use my platform in a way to create positive change both on the field and off the field. And having someone tell me I couldn't do that simply because, you know, a president or your bottom line is getting ready to be affected, that wouldn't deter me. I think we've made that very clear that what we are demonstrating about has nothing to do with the flag, but everything to do with social injustice, racial inequality, and all the things that Jerry Jones and other owners who are making statements have yet to address, end quote. 
bam, Malcolm Jenkins. He also said that if his own franchise CEO, notice I didn't say his own owner, because I hate that language when you talk about players having owners for reasons that should be obvious. He said that if his own franchise owner, Jeffrey Lurie, went up to him and said, you need to stop raising that fist during the anthem, he would tell Jeffrey Lurie to turn around and walk away. Bam. The other Just Stand Up Award goes to the coaches and managers from Hertha Berlin, who took a knee against American injustice and claimed solidarity with American athletes by taking that knee. It's amazing. I saw this when I was in Brazil covering the Olympics, that the Black Lives Matter movement has become part of the language in Brazil as well. This is a global movement, and it's not like it's something that is unique to the United States. So to see people in Berlin taking that knee at a time when far-right, highly racist politicians are on the rise, and more on the rise than any time we've seen in Germany uh, since the fall of Adolf Hitler, it is certainly beautiful to see the players in the Bundesliga Take that knee. Just stand up. Nicely done. And now it's time for the Just Sit Your Ass Down Award. Sit your ass down. Sit your ass down. And who could it go to other than Jerry Jones? Jerry Jones who said that his players, his boys, as he likes to say, would be standing for the anthem at attention or they would not play. Jerry Jones, who said that he was doing this in the best interests of players because they quote-unquote need consequences to stand up to peer pressure, speaking about them as if they are children. Jerry Jones, who landed his helicopter on the field last week to talk to players and then got on his helicopter and left to allay all concerns. Jerry Jones, who did this to a locker room in Dallas that had no players kneeling. No players kneeling. The first time a Dallas Cowboys player kneeled is when Jerry kneeled. And that was before the anthem when he orchestrated that idiotic choreography. Jerry Jones, who is so, I don't know, I think he thinks he's too clever by half, but he brought this hammer down right before the Cowboys had a bye week. But all he actually did was inflame the players. And oh, my favorite part, Jerry Jones, who said, It was Donald Trump who called him and told him that there was stuff in the rule book that said the players had to do this, and he just forgot that. First of all, A, it's not in the rule book. B, you're lying. Oh, and also, Jerry Jones, I mean, who the hell are you to preach morality to anybody? The one thing I don't want anybody to do is Google Jerry Jones and no pants. Please trust me. Don't Google Jerry Jones and no pants. Don't drop that shit. You don't want to do this. It's what we call nightmare fuel. Don't do it. But suffice it to say that if you did choose to Google, you would understand why nobody should listen to Jerry Jones. Now, a lot of folks are asking me to do a second Sit Your Ass Down Award this week for an ESPN talking head named Will Kane because he put my name in his mouth on their show this past week on, uh, what is it, the one with Stephen A. Smith, uh, uh, First Take, yeah, that's what it's called, First Take, and, you know, he called me some names and whatnot, and there have been people trying to egg me on to respond, but, you know, I don't do uh, TV performance art like that, and also, you know, Will Kane, who's on ESPN all the time, I I looked it up, I noticed he has about 40,000 less Twitter followers than I do, and I think the first rule of this is, you know, never feud with somebody who's got less people trying to hear what they're trying to say so it's just you know not worth my time and so i guess i'll just end with and now it's time for the part of the show that we call kaepernick watch This week, we know the news with Kaepernick Watch. He is filing for collusion, as Royce White and I discussed. A couple of words about this. First of all, I am very glad that Colin Kaepernick is doing this because it is beyond obvious that there is collusion going on. Anytime you have a league where Scott Tolzien gets meaningful snaps, you know there is collusion going on. Colin Kaepernick's passer rating was better last year than 16 current starting quarterbacks. And... I think Mike Freeman of Bleacher Report, and I've read this tweet before, 
but he gives just the ultimate slam dunk argument that there's collusion going on. This thing that Mike Freeman looked up and wrote, and I quote, 144 quarterbacks threw 200 or more passes the year they turned 29. 143 were on rosters when they turned 30. Colin Kaepernick is the only one not. That's a staggering, staggering statistic to me. So, yeah, we support Colin Kaepernick. For people who don't know the intricacies of collusion law, Colin Kaepernick and his lawyer, Mark Garagos, they have to prove that at least three owners engaged in conversations about not signing Kaepernick or the commissioner with Roger Goodell with at least one owner. Absent of that, Colin Kaepernick probably won't win this legally. Now, for all I know, he and his people have some kind of smoking gun. Maybe it's an email. Maybe it's a note. Maybe it's a text message. Maybe there's a whistleblower inside the NFL. And if they have that, then this thing is done. Stick the fork in it. Boom, shalak, lock, boom. If they don't have that, then this is what you have to see as a political fight. They're going to look at the statements by Donald Trump bragging that owners are scared to hire Colin Kaepernick. And let's see if that bears any fruit. But either way, morally... This is the right thing for Colin Kaepernick to do because it sends a shot across the bow at NFL owners to not try this with other people. And I think that's very important. I think it's self-sacrificing given the fact that I know that he wants to play in the National Football League, which is why he's filing this damn grievance. And there are a lot of teams now, the Green Bay Packers, who absolutely could use him. So him doing this, I think, lessens the chances of that happening. But at the same time, it needs to be done. And on that note, there's also another part of this, which I got to just read to folks. This is from Mark McCann over at Sports Illustrated, who's a legal analyst. And this is what he wrote. He wrote, at least in theory, there may be other legal recourses for Kaepernick against Donald Trump. One federal criminal statute, 18 U.S. Code 227, has attracted some attention because it prohibits the president from, quote, wrongfully influencing a private entity's employment decisions, end quote. If the president is charged and convicted with violating the statute, he would be disqualified from office and face up to 15 years in prison, end quote. Look, this almost certainly will not happen because we protect power in this country to a horrific degree. But I have to tell y'all, if I was writing the screenplay for the movie of the Donald Trump presidency... This is how it would end. This infantile racist would be taken down by Colin Kaepernick because he couldn't shut his damn mouth in front of his aging base. That's how this would go for me. Oh, my God. Donald Trump so desperate for the love of white people who are freaking out about race and racism and don't care what Donald Trump does for them as long as he... LOL, makes the snowflakes hurt, lols. You know, we have a Twitter troll president. Like, this would be how I'd love it to end. Colin Kaepernick sending Donald Trump to jail for 15 years. Hey, he can get out when he's 86. And now, a quick word from the second best podcast, hosted and sponsored by The Nation magazine. Start making sense. Okay, look, one of my favorite podcasts is really, really fast becoming Start Making Sense, hosted by John Wiener. They now do a whole section called The Children's Hour, stories about Ivanka, Jarrett, and Don Jr. Last week, they did the story about how Ivanka and Don Jr. were almost indicted for fraud in 2012 over the failing Trump Soho project, while Jared had some unfortunate ideas about how to run his weekly newspaper, The New York Observer, and Amy Willens, who is just a remarkable journalist, has these stories. Plus, John Wiener speaks to David Dian, who just wrote up a special investigation conducted by The Nation about how America's biggest bank paid its fine for the 2008 mortgage crisis with phony mortgages. It's about J.P. Morgan Chase, and it will make your eyeballs bleed. So please listen to Start Making Sense. It's posted at The Nation magazine every Thursday. You can also subscribe to it on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast app of choice. And now, back to Edge of Sports. All right, so that's our Kaepernick watch for this week. But it's only partway done because we also have a poetry reading 
by Tariq Touré, who is a poet and activist and the author of a tremendous book of poetry called Black Seeds. We end with Tariq Touré with his permission. It's an amazing work. It's about sports, politics, and everything in between. Take it away, Tariq Touré. I throws the ball, coach. I runs the ball, coach. I catches the ball, coach. I holds the ball, coach. I knows the ball, coach. I controls the ball, coach. But you, you owns the ball, coach. And this head field, and them there stands, and that there jumbotron, and them there fans, and oh Lord, my fans, you ain't got the ass. Just last week, I signed a grown man's forehead and the palms of his newborn's hands. Oh boy, they love me. On my grandmama's grave, they surely do. You know, a bullet be the only thing keeping this gang from me and you. God's got to be a gifted artist the way I've been picked and prodded. Since 16, I've been lean, whole hood, no, I'd get the farthest. Away from my fathers, away from coffins, away from slaughters. Can you believe USC wanted me? They only picked the hardest. Three-year starter, two All-Americans, banker's daughter. So this got to be a dream. See, see, where I'm from, you either hustle, get high, get hit, or hurdle defenders. But you take children with trauma and tempers from August, December, blow a whistle, let them loose, tear limbs from the tenants. Only the strong survive here. You better remember, shoo. So me without a ball is Clark Kent without a cape. I knock a couple helmets off, they deposit in my papes. But wait, what you say? 44 shots, three of them to the face. Now wait. Did he hold on to the steering wheel with a smile up on his face? Did he say, yes, officer, no, officer, please chuck my registration in my plates? Oh, no, nah. you know how we be bucking the law. Too much damn attitude, get the weapons involved. What you saying, he was unarmed and fitted description, wasn't no shaking it off. They were looking for a six foot four, 245 pound black male to be exact. And he was reaching for his license and got rounds up in his back. Loud sounds and then collapse. Well, look at here, we got to do something. I mean, something's got to shake. That could be me, arms folded. Cousins getting consoling. Everybody huddled at my wake. But my job is just to play. Plus my foundation did 10,000 turkeys in the hood last year. What's more for me to say? Now, I don't want to get cornered in debate, but there's a mortgage in the way. It's how I afforded the estate. But could I be mortgaging my play? Could my legs be the leverage that makes owners more cordial with the tape? And is a mouth wide shut and blind eyes open help absorbing all the hate? This game is all I've had for my escape. And I escaped. But I assure you, they love me. Surely they understand today. So when I take this knee as the anthem starts to play, you think they could look at me with this passion in my face and truly be able to say, this was the land of the free and the home of the brave? Well, that's all we have this week for the show. Thank you so much, Royce White. Thank you so much to my co-producers, David Tigaboo, and back in full effect, Daniel Baker. Glad to have you back, Dan Baker. Thank you so much to all of our listeners, especially the people at Ithaca College who now listen to this podcast. And, man, it was so great to meet everybody up in Ithaca. Thank you all so much. Thank you also to everybody out there following us on Twitter at Edge of Sports Pod. You can also follow me, Dave Zirin, at Edge of Sports on Twitter. Please give us a call, 401-426-3343. That's 401-426-EDGE. If you have any suggestions for the Just Stand Up or Just Sit Your Ass Down Awards, uh, my name is Dave Zirin. You can always listen to back episodes at edgesportspodcast.com. Stay frosty, everybody. We are out of here. Peace.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbird styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24.